Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. This summer, when you're going to Nationals Park, make Walters your spot to hang out before the game. Located just across the street from the ballpark, walk on over to Walters. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now Freeland kicks, delivers. Swing and a fly ball hit well to left center field. This is way back. Downs into the warning track to the wall and it is gone. Zoom goes one Soto with a two-run homer, his ninth of the year. Only Franco, the third baseman on the left side of the pitch. Popped up, foul, down the left field line, or maybe foul, maybe fair. Thomas into foul ground, he's there, and Lane Thomas makes the catch. And bangs, Uma, Curly W's in the books. The Nationals take three out of four from the Colorado Rockies and have a series win at home for the first time in 2022. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, May 30th, 2022, Memorial Day 2022. We salute and thank all of those who have died serving our country and all of those who are serving our country, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. So it was on the weekend of April 29th through May 1st that the Nats won two or three games at the San Francisco Giants. That had been the Nats' last series win until now. The Nats on Sunday afternoon, a 6-5 win over the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park to win three or four games in the series. Yes, an actual series win for the Nats, who now this season are 18-31, and one win away from you-know-what. And if they get to you-know-what, then I guess that means that they're winning the World Series this year. But if for some reason the Nats don't win the World Series this year, some strange, odd, unexpected reason that that doesn't happen, we can at least say that the Nats won this series against the Rockies. And the series ended with a lot of good stuff for the Nats. A sensational five-out save by Tanner Rainey, a bounce-back outing for Josiah Gray, a good day at the plate for Juan Soto, Victor Robles and Cesar Hernandez put cappers on very good series for them. Mark, it wasn't always pretty, that is true, but there was a lot to like from Sunday at Nationals Park where you are. Yeah, I'm going to look at the good to come out of this one. Juan Soto, You know, we had seen signs in recent days. We finally saw the result to go along with it. A classic one Soto Homer into the red seats in left center field. We saw Lane Thomas hit another home run. He had had an offer in the whole homestand. Not good. We saw Josiah Gray after that really shaky start leadoff home run. We've seen this happen to him before, but this time he buckled down, ends up going five and doesn't give up anything else. And we saw a big boy save from Tanner Rainey to get the five outs. I mean, that's a game. Think about how many times in the past few years 
as you start to see it spiraling out of control, the other team's creeping up, the Nats miss some opportunities to tack on late, and you're thinking, oh boy, here we go. And Tanner Rainey didn't just lock that down. I mean, he was perfect. Five batters faced, five outs, three strikeouts. That's the first time he has gone multiple innings since 2020. And it's the first multi-inning save of his career. So I do think that is significant. And I think it's significant to win a series. I get that the Rockies aren't a great team, but you just won three out of four. And right now, the Nats are in no position to shortchange anything that they accomplished that's positive. Not at all. Beggars shall not be choosers. And I actually think the Tanner Rainey item is the headline item from this game on Sunday afternoon. You know, I asked you after his last outing, he pitches in the eighth. I'm like, well, what about, you know, a three plus out save for Tanner Rainey? We get the five outer on Sunday. Uh, What a job by Tanner Rainey. This to me is the best outing any Nats reliever has had in a single game this season. I I thought this was really impressive what he did on Sunday afternoon. So four Nats relievers in this game combined to allow four runs in four innings. Coral Edwards Jr., a perfect top of the six, but Andres Machado in the top of the seventh allowed two runs. Kyle Finnegan in the top of the eighth had all kinds of problems. He faced five batters. He got just one out. He allowed two runs on a double and three singles, and yet he got credit for a hold, which is my favorite part of this game, that Kyle Finnegan got one out, gave up two runs, and yet got credit for a hold. Uh, But then Tanner Rainey came into the game, and he was fabulous. Like Mark said, one and two-thirds perfect innings, three strikeouts, the great five-out save. I mean, he comes into the game, top of the eighth, there is one out, you have runners at the corners, the Nats are nursing a one-run lead. The game is slipping out of the Nats' grasp at this point, and he records back-to-back swinging strikeouts of Elias Diaz and Charlie Blackman. And then Rainey tosses a perfect top of the ninth that includes a three-pitch strikeout of C.J. Crone. We know what the appeal of Tanner Rainey has been. He is a high-velocity guy. He can be a strikeout guy, a dominant back end of the bullpen guy. And that is exactly the Rainey who we saw on Sunday afternoon. It was so great to see that. That was draw up a picture in your mind of what a closer is supposed to look like. That's what it's supposed to look like, right? Fastballs blowing him away, the occasional slider as well, and just a confidence and a mound presence to him that even as everything else around him may be starting to slip away, he seized back control of that game and said, I'm not going to give this one up. I don't care what's happened before me. The Blackman strikeout, of course, is the biggest one of all because he's the most accomplished hitter that he's facing and the tying run is on third. So to get that. But I also think what's big there is, so he gets out of that one. He's thrown 10 pitches to get those two strikeouts. And now he's got to not let his guard down knowing he's coming back out for the ninth inning. It's a situation, like we said, he's never been in before, not a, a, in a safe situation, to have to come right back out. And what you saw in the ninth was there was no let up at all. He ends up in the ninth inning. If I believe I have this correct, he threw eight pitches and they were all strikes. So think about Tanner Rainey when he struggles. It's because he falls behind. It's because he often gives up a walk very often to a a hitter at the bottom of the order, gets himself into trouble. And in this case, he never gave them a chance to think about coming back unless somebody was going to hit a home run. That was the only way they were going to do it. So I think even though the eighth inning is the hairier situation. In a lot of ways, I think the ninth inning is just as impressive because he locked it down and didn't give them an opportunity to try to come back at that point. He threw 18 pitches, 16 were strikes. I mean, that's hard to complain too much about that. And, you know, look, he had the two blown saves. We've talked about that. It hasn't always been great with Tanner Rainey. We've discussed that. He's dealt with some injuries too in his time 
But you see in a game like this why the Nats have really tried to give this guy a good faith opportunity because the talent is undeniable. And when he puts it all together, he can do as he did. I mean, that was an elite closer-like performance, what Rainey put forth. What do you think about Finnegan? Because at times he does look good, and then at other times he doesn't look so good. He now hasn't looked so good over his last few outings. We saw this last year. He had a nice stretch, and then he also had a a period of time in which he didn't do so well. His ERA for the season now is over four. You know, I was looking at some of the velocity numbers. Finnegan actually throws about as hard as Rainey does. If you look at average four-seam fastball velocity, I mean, it's not an issue of like Rainey's stuff is better than Finnegan's stuff, but there seems to be a problem of consistency with Kyle Finnegan. Yeah. Until this weekend, I thought he'd been pitching better than anybody out of the bullpen, at least, and has often been the guy to pitch some really important innings in the seventh and the eighth against the heart of some lineups. Now, it hasn't been the case the last couple of days. There also were a few like these perfectly placed seeing eye singles through a, a shifted infield, something like that. But Davey Martinez said that he did notice something from the dugout. They want to look at some video. He thinks he picked up on something that Finnegan might have been doing. He also said he noticed the body language wasn't great in this one as the inning was starting to get out of control for him. And that's among the reasons that he pulled him there. So we'll see. I mean, We've talked so much this year about how they can't find opportunities for these two guys to pitch. All of a sudden, what do you know? When the team starts winning games, they need them both. Maybe a little extra work caught up with them. I would imagine both are going to be down on Monday in New York. And so if the Nats find themselves in a position to win, Davey's going to have to figure out another way to do it. But I'll be curious to see when Finnegan pitches next and what, if anything, they maybe spot in the video that perhaps gives them a clue about what's going on with him and if it's anything they can make a quick fix on. Yeah, the Nats remain in this period of time in which there are no scheduled off days for a while. Three games at the Mets are coming up, then a four-game series at Cincinnati. The Nats' next scheduled off day, not till Monday, June 6th. And then they actually have a period of time where they get a decent number of off days in the month of June. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of Legal Headhunters working for you and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call them today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. And the pitch swung on into the air to deep right. Soto going back toward the line, looking up. It is gone. Goodbye. A home run for Charlie Blackman on the second pitch of the game into the Nationals' bullpen down the right field line. And the long ball woes continue for Josiah Gray. It's the Rockies' one and the Nationals' nothing. 
a bounce back Sunday afternoon for Josiah Gray. He wasn't great, but he was certainly better than he had been over his recent outings. Uh, Josiah Gray in this 6-5 win over the Rockies on Sunday afternoon. One run in five innings. Uh, he gave up just three hits, a homer and two singles. Biggest problem was that he issued four walks. Uh, he had three strikeouts. He threw 93 pitches over the five innings. So this was not a pitch efficient performance. Obviously, the four walks bother you. And the way the outing began, I mean, boy, you couldn't have scripted it much worse, right? Josiah Gray off having given up all of these homers in recent games. He came into this game on Sunday having allowed nine home runs over his previous four starts. And what does he do? Second pitch of the game gives up a leadoff homer to Charlie Blackman to right field to put the Rockies up one nothing. But then he was better and he put guys on base. That's true. I mean, it's not like you had, you know, a horde of clean innings from Josiah Gray in this game. But one run in five innings, you know, he did something like a scoreless top of the third despite issuing back-to-back walks to begin the inning, scoreless top of the fifth despite issuing a two-out walk at Charlie Blackman, then giving up a two-out single to Yonatan Daza. So, you know, I feel like we've had a lot of these outings from Nats pitchers this season, or at least a good number of them, where guys get put on base, but the actual run prevention ends up being okay. You want to see him go deeper than five innings, and that ended up harming the Nats because the bullpen wasn't great on Sunday afternoon, but... Considering what had been the case with Josiah in his recent outings, this was a step forward. It was. And after that leadoff homer, I'm thinking, oh, boy, this could be a difficult day for him because it's a warm afternoon, maybe the warmest of the year so far. And it felt more like summer in terms of the ball flying off the bat. We haven't seen the ball travel very well so far through the first two months of the season. That's probably going to start changing now. And when he hit the leadoff home run, I'm thinking we may see a bunch of these today. We know Josiah has trouble with that. I think I predicted last night that this was going to be an issue for him trying to keep the ball in the yard. It might be the key to the game. So to his credit, he shook that one off, got back down to business and you know was able to keep them from scoring after that. The walks were annoying. The other thing that was annoying, and this was out of his control, is there's a pop-up, a foul pop-up in the fourth inning that Josh Bell lost in the sun. Didn't harm them because it landed foul, so it didn't produce anything except for this. It extended the inning. There were two outs. The inning could have been over. He wound up throwing, I believe, 14 extra pitches because of that because there was a super long at bat right after that with Brendan Rodgers that ended in an out, but he kept fouling off pitches. It was 3-2 going on for a long time. And so by the time Josiah gets through the fifth, he's at 93 pitches. Not to say that everything would have gone exactly the same if not for the earlier thing, but take away 14 pitches, he's at 79 after five. He can come back out for the sixth, and maybe we have a different viewpoint on what the outing was like, and it changes the bullpen usage afterwards. So one of those little weird things that actually kind of cost him, even though it didn't necessarily cost the team in the bigger picture. Yeah, this has been a strange season in Nationals Park. A lot of balls have been lost in the sky, either via the Sun Monster or the Twilight. We had that Nelson Cruz double on Saturday night in the bottom of the eighth. The Rockies lost the ball in the sky. And uh, the left fielder, Sam Hilliard, who, by the way, had one adventure after another in this series in left field, he failed to make a diving for a catch on that play. So with the home runs with Josiah Gray, I mean, he gives up another one that ends up being the only run that he allows in this game. But you're now looking at Josiah Gray over 122 major league innings, having given up 32 home runs. That's a really high number. His career home runs per nine innings is 2.36. It's the biggest issue he has. It's the kind of thing that you obviously want to see him get fixed. Has Davey or anyone else talked about why he's giving up so many home runs? It's not like he's giving up a bunch of hits otherwise, but home runs really are a problem for him. Yeah, and just to put that number into context, remember last year, Patrick Corbin gave up 37, 
which led the league and was a new club record. And he did that over 171 and two-thirds innings. So Josiah is way beyond that pace if you're just looking at his brief major league career to this point. So that is a concern. Why it happens, I think what we have seen with him is that while the stuff can be good, he does have a tendency to let pitches trail back over the plate, both his fastball but also his breaking balls. When he's not throwing a sharp slider, it kind of backs up over the plate. That's not what you want from that pitch, obviously. And unfortunately, when they do hit it, they hit it really hard and they get it up in the air. So he may just be a fly ball guy, a home run guy. You know, there have been very successful pitchers. I think of Max Scherzer in particular like that. The key, though, for him is going to be to limit the walks. If you're not giving up a lot of hits, but you do give up homers, you got to make sure they're solo homers. And even last year when he first came up here and he gave up some, Remember, they were all solo, and he was still pitching well in the bigger picture and won some games for them. So if you can limit them to solo homers, and by doing that, you eliminate the walks, you're not giving up a lot of hits anyways, I think you can live with that. If not, he is going to have to figure out a way to keep the ball in the yard more because two-run homers, three-run homers are going to be the end of him if he can't put a stop to that. Yeah, no question. Uh, and he does have a bit of a walk issue, too, is uh, walks per nine innings this season at 4.38. But one run in five innings, much better than what we had been seeing from Josiah Gray. So nice to see him do as he did on Sunday afternoon. So this was a game in which the Nationals scored six runs. Uh, the Nats finished with nine hits, uh, four walks. Nats only went one of six with runners in scoring position. But this was another game in the series in which the Nats had extra base hits. And when you have extra base hits, you don't have to have, you know, 14 hits to score four runs. This had been the case, it felt like, with the Nats for weeks here. Two more homers for the Nats in this game, two more doubles for the Nats in this game. And registering both a homer and a double in this game to go with a walk, was Juan Soto, who we spent a good bit of time on on the previous installment of the Dat Chat podcast. Juan Soto on Sunday afternoon, two for three with a two-run homer, a double, and a walk. He and the Nats two-run first smashed a one-out two-run opposite field homer to left center field for a 2-1 Nats lead. We know that when Soto was going well, he's going the opposite way. He did that, obviously, there. Bottom of the fifth, he drew a leadoff five-pitch walk. Bottom of the sixth, had a two-out double off the right field bullpen fence. Juan Soto came into this game on Sunday with an OPS for the season of 795. Most guys, that's good. With Soto, when you see a seven to begin his OPS, that's not normal. We're not used to seeing that, right? We're used to eight, nine, if not, you know, one point something. Uh, So 795 stood out. You know, it's one game. We've seen him do this this year where he has a good game, maybe even a good few games, and then he's quiet for a few weeks. So let's see what this is followed up by. But clearly, the Juan Soto on display on Sunday is the Juan Soto we've been wanting to see more of. Yeah, and there had been signs of this. I'm looking back through my scorebook to try to remember them all. In this series, first at bat of the series, Thursday night, he drives a ball deep to left field. It's caught, but it's a a good, solid opposite field line drive for Juan Soto. Then the first game on Saturday, he hits another ball pretty close to where he hit the home run on Sunday. It doesn't quite get there, ends up as a double to deep left center, but again, a good sign. He hit a fly ball to the warning track in center that was caught. Another good sign. And then, of course, the home run right in his wheelhouse to left center field, the the red seats. I mean, that was classic Juan Soto. And they almost hit another one to right field. He just missed it and ends up, ends up uh, bouncing off the fence for a double. So I think there have been signs. He was talking afterwards about feeling much more confident about some tweaks he's made. He described it as doing his homework a little more. And 
he was feeling better about himself, it seemed like, than we've heard from him in a little while. We've talked about it's not just the performance, but the body language and every other part of his game that has been a little bit out of whack here lately. He seemed today, both on the field and then afterwards off the field, to be a little more like the Juan Soto we've come to know and love with a little more confidence and swagger. And maybe that's a good sign here. Yeah, especially after he hit the home run, he did his thing where he does this like almost gallop as he's going around third base. And then he got in the dugout and he shoved someone. I couldn't tell who he shoved, but he he was feeling himself, in other words. Like he was he was very excited about the homer and he should have been. That was an impressive home run. And it was a great response to what Charlie Blackman had done to begin the game in the top of the first. So good to see Juan Soto uh, have multiple extra base hits on Sunday afternoon. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. The Window Nation graduation sale continues. If your old windows are failing or just not making the grade, here's a homework assignment. Call Window Nation and get to the head of the class with 0% financing for five full years. Yes, five years, 60 months, and get two free windows for every two windows that you buy. Window Nation windows are the best. Window Nation has installed over a million windows in over 150,000 homes with 96% of those homes needing no follow-up service. You get two free windows for every two windows that you buy and you make no down payment and pay no interest for 24 months. Increase the value of your home with curb appeal. Save money on your energy bills by replacing your old inefficient windows with new energy efficient Window Nation windows. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now everybody ready to go and Freeland to the belt. Robles running the pitch outside. They're going to throw on through the slide and the tag. The ball gets away and now here comes Escobar. He will score. Robles steals second. It looked like the throw hit Robles and rolled away to the left of second. And with that, Escobar broke for the plate and scores easily. And the Nationals lead by the score of three to one. Victor Robles on Sunday afternoon capped what overall ended up being a good series for him. He did have a mixed day on Saturday. We talked about that on the last installment of the podcast. But Victor Robles ended up starting all four games for the Nats in this series. When's the last time that happened? Victor Robles started every game of a series for the Nats. Feels like it had been a while since that uh, went down. And Robles on Sunday afternoon, two for four with two singles. 
and two stolen bases. How about the two-run second for the Nats? Uh, Victor in that inning, a two-out bloop single to shallow center field and two stolen bases, including a steal of second base on which the Rockies second baseman Brendan Rodgers committed a miscatch error, allowing Alcides Escobar to score from third base. So really a classic example of the running game putting pressure on the opposing defense. Rodgers was trying to make one of those quick snap tags, knowing that Robles is fast. Robles got a great jump on the steal, and instead Rodgers like whiffed and catching the ball. Escobar ended up scoring. Robles in the bottom of the fourth had a two-out infield single on a ball that was hit to the Rockies shortstop Jose Iglesias deep in the hole. So Victor Robles in this series, seven for 16 with a home run, six singles, four of four on stolen bases. He had some boo-boos on Saturday. We talked about those, so it wasn't perfection. But man, I mean, this is the Victor Robles we want to see. And isn't it interesting, the Nats' last series win at San Francisco, Robles was great in that series. The Nats' next series win at home against the Rockies, Robles was very good in this series. That's a great point. I had not thought about that, Al. Maybe Victor Robles is the key to everything. We've been talking (laughs) about if Soto hits, then the team will win. Maybe it's actually Victor Robles. I like your thinking there. And what I liked in this case, especially in that second inning, was they forced the issue. That's the good kind of base running. Make the defense make a play. They must have had a good scouting report on Freeland and the catcher Diaz to suggest they could run on him. They made it work. They created errors, essentially, from that. You know, Robles ends up stealing third right after all that, and he almost had a chance to score because the ball got away there. It just didn't trickle away far enough. So a good job of putting pressure on the defense in a productive way, not in a careless way or overly aggressive way. So I thought that was good. And big picture, there are things to like here. I would say that we have seen more from Victor Robles in the last month than we did pretty much at any time last year enough to say we want to keep seeing more. Now, we've got to see it consistently, of course, but the team is in a position where I think they can't afford to put him out there just about every day. That's okay. Lane Thomas has struggled some, although he did hit the home run in this game. Yadiel Hernandez has his moments, but you know I think we know at this point you don't need to see a lot more to evaluate him. By the end of this year, you got to know once and for all what Victor Robles is. So I'm okay with playing him as much as possible, uh, as long as he is producing to some extent to help you make that determination. Absolutely. And if you do exit this season with Victor Robles being back, that is so huge. I mean, that, that's like acquiring a top-notch prospect all over again. If, if Victor Robles has been reborn and, you know, 2019 Victor Robles is back in full effect. So good to see him uh, perform like this. And, you know, you see him do this and you say to yourself, well, that's still within him. Like he's still capable of this. And so you're like, well, we just want to see more of this. I want to give credit to Cesar Hernandez. He's been good lately. He was really good in this series. Uh, Hernandez on Sunday, two for three with an RBI single, another single, and two walks. He got on base four times. He's gone from like never getting walks to now drawing walks on a pretty consistent basis. And not coincidentally, his on-base percentage for the season is shot up here. Uh, Hernandez in that Nats two-run first drew a leadoff five-pitch walk. By the way, lately, a lot of these big Nats innings are including Hernandez doing things. He's been a part of a lot of these big scoring innings for the Nats lately. The two-run second on Sunday, he had a two-out full count RBI single to left field to put the Nats up 4-1 despite having been down to the count at 1.12 as uh, the Rockies left fielder Sam Hilliard failed to make another diving forward catch. It was one adventure after another for old Sam Hilliard in this series in left field. Uh, Hernandez in the bottom of the fourth, a two-out eight-pitch walk. Hernandez in the Nats two-run six, a two-out opposite field single uh, to no man's land in right field. Cesar Hernandez in this series, seven for 16, 
three doubles, four singles, three walks. He got on base a ton. And Cesar Hernandez now on the season has an on-base percentage of 339, which no isn't elite, but it's a lot better than what it was just a few weeks ago. And if that thing continues to creep up and you get that bad boy around 350, he should be your leadoff man. So uh, it's really encouraging to see him doing uh, as he has been doing here lately. Yeah, I was just looking up the stats as you were saying it. He's batting 287, 339 on base, 700 OPS, which again, that's not elite, but for him and for what they need from him, especially the fact that he hasn't hit a home run yet, that's pretty good. I think you will take that absolutely a 700 OPS from him out of the leadoff spot. I like that he is being more patient and drawing walks. He's had some long at-bats, too. I don't know if the power is going to come at any point. Maybe it won't. Maybe that's not the worst thing. The guy hit 21 homers last year. It's hard to imagine that he still has zero. We're almost a third of the way through the season. But if he is going to be the leadoff hitter, then what matters more than anything is getting on base, and he has done that a lot more regularly here. So I do like it, and I think it helps set up the other guys and giving them opportunities. You know, Nelson Cruz is also starting to hit. Uh, kind of quietly, just consistently. He's on a 10-game hitting streak now. He's up to 238. Again, nothing spectacular, but from where he was, uh, it's a lot better. It's a lot of singles and doubles, and he has been driving and runs. So there are some good signs there, and I think it does start at the top of the lineup and creating opportunities for Soto and Cruz. Yeah. Cesar Hernandez, as we are taping this installment of the Nats Chat podcast, is tied for fifth in the majors in hits this season. He has 58 hits. Uh, Now, there are still some games going on on this Sunday, so that ranking may change. But he's top 10 in the majors in hits, which is like, wow, I, I don't know that that many people would be aware of something like that. So let's see. He's at 58 hits through 49 games. And if he just gets to like 61 by game 54, then he's on pace for over 180. I believe the club record by Denard Span is 184. So, I mean, long way to go. He's got to keep this up. But that is actually a pretty elite rate, at least in terms of this team's history, for somebody to do that. That may not be hitting for power, but singles can work as a leadoff hitter. If If you're singles and drawing walks, that's quite all right. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, the singles and the walks. To get that on base up to where he's got it at, I think now it's like, all right, that's acceptable. You see why Davey had this vision of Cesar Hernandez as a leadoff batter. Uh, You mentioned Nelson Cruz, 10-game hitting streak now, one for four with a double uh, on Sunday. He, in the bottom of the fifth, had a first-pitch double down the left field line. So, you know, lots of good stuff here from the Nats offensively in, what, three of the four games in this series, right? You didn't get that much quality offensively in the 3-2 loss on Saturday night. Although in that game, you had like a lot of doubles. You just had the team going 1-16 with runners in scoring position. So you could argue this really ended up being one of the Nats' best offensive series of the season. Guys getting on base, lots of extra base hits. Rockies are bad. That's true. You're about to face a much better team in the Mets. So we'll see if the Nats uh, can keep it going here. Well, also on Sunday afternoon for the Nats was the second minor league rehab outing for Steven Strasburg. And whereas his first outing did not go well in terms of results, although did go well in terms of how he was feeling after the outing, this second outing went quite well in terms of results. Stras. John Stamos, full house, get him out of there, baby! Strasburg on Sunday afternoon in a 7-4 home win for the Low A Fredericksburg Nationals over the Salem Red Sox. Five scoreless innings, six strikeouts versus one walk, and no hits. Not bad. 58 pitches, 38 strikes versus 20 balls. And 
Did I read this correct? He was in the Nats clubhouse after the game. That's quite a quick uh, trip that he made there from uh, Fredericksburg to D.C. Apparently, Memorial Day Sunday traffic was not bad on I-95, which was like the first time ever, unless he maybe, I, you know, I didn't ask, maybe he has the Lerner uh, private helicopter to bring him back up. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Cannot confirm that. But I was surprised to see him. Now, I mean, I knew Davey had said that the, the plan was for him to pitch and then come back up because he's actually joining them on the trip to New York so that he can work out for a few days with them as they make their plans for the next uh, rehab start. But, you know, once he's out of the game after five innings, he doesn't have to stick around. He can shower, dress and leave. And when you throw five scoreless on 58 pitches, uh, it doesn't take a lot of time, especially in the minor leagues. So he actually retired the first 14 he faced. He was one out away from a perfect five innings before he finally issued the walk. Now, the numbers are, you know, one thing, of course, those are great. It's more important about how did he feel, how did he feel the shape of his pitches worked and all that. Based on the results, you have to think it was probably really good. Davey was planning to talk with him on the train right up to New York, get a better sense of things from him. But the initial signs are very encouraging. And if there's no other setbacks over the next few days, he'll throw a bullpen session in New York. And Davey said that his next rehab outing would come in Rochester. And I believe that would be Friday or potentially Saturday if they want to give him an extra day. And let's see. But it's possible if that one goes well that that could be the last one. If he can get up to six innings and the pitch count like up over 80 and he feels good about things, it's possible that that's the last one. I would not be surprised if there's one more after that just to make sure, build the pitch count up a little bit higher. But I think we said uh, a little while back when he started the rehab assignment, I said June 8th is the earliest, but probably somewhere June 8th to 15th. I still think that is the range we're talking about. If he is really good in his next one in Rochester, you're probably looking at somewhere in that June 8th range in Miami. If not, if he needs one more, we're probably talking about the home series against the Braves the week of the 13th, 14th, 15th. So we're getting close. Finally, we are getting close. It's Steven Strasburg. You always hold your breath because you never know what the next one's going to bring. But so far, so good in how this has worked out. Do you think that the Nats would hold off on him making his return start until they are at home. So they wait until this road trip is over. The road trip is three games at the Mets, four games at Cincinnati, three games at Miami. And then you have a substantial homestand, three games against Milwaukee, three games against Atlanta, five games against Philadelphia. Do you think trying to pop a big house at Nationals Park would enter into the thinking at all here? I'm sure somebody may have that on their mind, but look, I'm going to be honest about this. I don't know that that is the draw that it used to be. I don't know there's a whole lot of things at this point that are going to draw a big single game crowd in Nats Park. I think it's mostly advanced ticket sales. I think it depends on who the opponent is, the day of the week, the weather, the you know summer vacation being in, in full swing. I don't know that it's crazy to say because we think back to when he first came up when every start of his was an event. I'm not so sure at this point that that makes that big a difference. Yeah, of course, you'd rather have it be at home. But I think above all else, they don't want to mess with his schedule. So if it's a matter of finagling things to make that happen, I don't know that that's necessarily something they're going to want to do. Now, the interesting thing here is they do need a new, another fifth starter now that Aaron Sanchez has been DFA'd. They're going to need to call up somebody or find somebody to start Wednesday's game in New York. There's nobody currently out of all these, either in the current rotation or even from, you know, Strasburg or Cavalli or Cole Henry. None of them line up properly for that one. So somebody else has to make that start. But after that, because of the off day coming up after Cincinnati next Monday, 
they don't need a fifth starter again until the 11th. So it does offer the opportunity, if Strasburg is ready, for him to take that spot. And they just need to pick which day that is along his schedule. So Davey Martinez talked to you guys before the game on Sunday. This was the first time he had spoken since Aaron Sanchez got DFA'd late Saturday night. Is that what you think they're thinking? Like, did Davey sort of let on to what the thinking is right now in terms of, hey, what are they going to do for a number five starter? So what he said was that the decision of why they DFA'd Sanchez when they did was that they felt like they needed to clear up a spot on the 40-man roster because of Wednesday's game and needing another starter. Now, he didn't flat out say that they would be calling someone up for that spot, or even specifically that it would be somebody off the 40-man roster, although he did acknowledge that that was one possibility. Sounds like they aren't going to make this decision until Tuesday, or at least publicly not announce anything until then. The only minor league starter who fits in schedule-wise into that formula is a guy at AAA named Jackson Tetro, who's not ranked among their top prospects. He's pitched fairly well for them. He's lined up to pitch on the correct day. He's not on the 40-man roster, so this would clear a spot for him. So I think that is one possibility. Evan Lee, I think I mentioned the other night, is a lefty at at AA. He's already on the 40-man roster, but much less experienced, and I don't know that he's necessarily in the mix right now. The other possibility would be, depending on how these first two games in New York go, if they don't need to use up a lot of their bullpen, then maybe Josh Rogers or Paolo Espino could get that start, come out of the bullpen to make that start, and then use the freed-up roster spot on another reliever. So I think that is a possibility they could explore. So again, we're just talking about really just needing for one start here, it sounds like. If Strasburg really is going to be ready at the back end of this, I don't think they need anybody for more than the one start, and then they can fill in Sanchez's spot potentially with Strasburg about 10 days from now. All right. One other item. This has come up now multiple times having to do with the contract status of Mike Rizzo and the contract status of Davey Martinez. Bob Nightingale of USA Today had this and uh, John Heyman of the New York Post had this, that the deadline by which the Nats have to exercise these 2023 options for Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez is the all-star break. It's not this offseason. And the reporting has varied in terms of what the number is on Davey Martinez. Nightingale said it's a $4 million option for Davey next year. Heyman said it's a $3.5 million option for next year, which is substantial money for any manager, but especially for a Nats manager, right? We're not used to the learners paying a manager that kind of money. We're still used to options having to be exercised in off seasons. It's not always that you have in-season options. Apparently, that is the case here. It's not just that 2023 is a club option year for both Rizzo and Davey. It's that 2023 is a club option that has to be exercised by the All-Star break this year. I guess that would make it more likely than unlikely that the options get exercised. But then when I saw the Davey money, I was like, boy, that's not a learner kind of thing to do to pay a manager three and a half, four million dollars. What do you think about the dynamics here? They seem to be changing every five minutes. Yeah. Well, so again, this is the details getting out publicly for the first time. Obviously, the principal people involved here have known this all along. So they designed that for a reason, whatever it is. My guess would be that specifically in Davey Martinez's case, that he would want that to be earlier in the year like that so that he doesn't end up being a lame duck manager all year long, twisting in the wind and then the season ends. And now he's got to find out, is he being picked up or not? You know, I go back to the Jim Riggleman saga from a long time ago now, but that was a case where his was up at the end of the year and it was in late June that he started asking, hey, I'd like 
to discuss my contract and to see if I could have the option picked up and they wouldn't go for it at that point. That's why he walked away. So perhaps with all that background in his mind, Davey and his agent, Alan Nero, wanted to make sure this was addressed before it ever got to that point. Now, the flip side of that would be, in theory, if they decided not to pick it up in July, now you know you're out at the end of the year. And do you manage the rest of the season like that? Or do you pull a Jim Riggleman and say, thanks, uh, I'm going to be on my way now? I don't know. It really hasn't been first and foremost in anybody's mind right now. I really feel like barring some kind of either major collapse by the team or, you know, mutiny within the clubhouse, which we've never seen any indication of, or without an ownership change happening really soon prior to that point where they now have the ability to make the decision themselves. I find it hard to believe that the learners would decide in July not to bring back Davey Martinez and Mike Rizzo, even if that is the salary that is owed to him. Again, they made that deal late in 2020. They knew what they were getting. They felt like that was the going rate for a World Series winning manager. Yeah, it's more than we're used to Nationals manager making, but I don't think they put that in there without at least in the back of their minds knowing there's a chance they're picking it up someday. I mean, when Davey first came here, his salary was less than a million dollars. That his 2023 number could be, again, three and a half, four million, depending on who's reporting you're believing. That is a substantial leap. And that's just so anti the way the learners have operated over the years. I wonder if they would be like, hey, this guy's been here for five years. Four of the five years have been disappointing to various degrees. We're not going anywhere anytime soon anyway. We can hire some kid, pay him a fourth of that and uh, sell the team and, you know, save ourselves a few million dollars. I mean, I wonder if they would think along those lines. But the point here is this. Decision time is coming up very soon on both Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez. This has snuck up on a lot of people. But, you know, here we are now. We're about to enter June. The All-Star break is in the middle of July. So over the next month and a half, like, we're going to have resolution on this. And uh, I think it's interesting. There's a lot happening with this Nats team. There's a lot of uncertainty right now with the ownership, with Rizzo, with Davey. I mean, if you want to expand it out to, you know, the Juan Soto contract situation, obviously the state of the baseball team is uncertain with the rebuild. It's hard to remember the last time there was this much uncertainty, this many question marks with this franchise. You probably have to go back to when the team first came here and was still owned by MLB. Like there's just a lot up in the air with this team right now. Yeah. And it's because it stems all from the same thing. The fact that there may be new owners here at some point. We don't know exactly when because that sets in motion everything else. And it's almost impossible to have concrete answers to all these other questions, which are important questions that need answering uh, until you know the answer to the primary one. And that's not a position that the organization has been in in a long time. What I can tell you, and of course, this is worthy discussion topics, and these are important decisions that are all being made. I can tell you, honestly, it's not showing up in the clubhouse on the field. It really has not been brought up at all. And, you know, I think it's a testament to Davey that he doesn't let that kind of thing get in the way. But I haven't seen anything in the way that he is managing that suggests to me that he is doing so because of his contract situation. He knows the situation the team is in in terms of rebuilding. He's doing what he can to try to go 1-0 and every day, of course, but without losing sight of the big picture. And, you know, I give him credit for that because it would be easy in that situation for a manager to say, I'm going to start doing things to save my own rear end here, that it's all about protecting myself. And I haven't seen that with him. I, I see him showing the same amount of care in his players and for the organization that he has always had since day one upon arriving here. These details of Rizzo and Davey, 
their contracts coming out. They're obviously coming from somewhere. Do you think it's safe to assume that the leaks are coming from Camp Rizzo and Camp Davey, or should we not assume that? You never know these things for sure. Whenever it comes to it, you know, you, you always say in your mind, okay, somebody wanted this to get out there. It hasn't been out there previously. So who does it most benefit to put out there? And what I would say in the past when it's come to particularly Mike Rizzo's contract, when every few years there's a question of, oh, is he going to be picked up or not? It's mostly would seem to have benefited him to make it public and get it out there to maybe put a little pressure on ownership to make something happen by letting the world know that it needs to happen by a certain date, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it would make more sense for these things to be coming from their side than it would to say that it's coming from ownership side, which, you know, probably prefers all along if these things be kept private. The fact that we didn't even know the exact details of this all along was probably more an indication of ownership than anything. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You tell us what you think. Lots to be thinking about right now if you're a Nats fan, but the Nats are winning more than they're losing, at least lately. So that's nice to see. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in sponsoring the Nats chat podcast, hit up Tim Shovers. Again, the email address, Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats chat podcast t-shirt by going to Nats chat podcast.square. Dot site. That's natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. 3-2, two, two out, runner goes in the pitch. Swung on, hit in the air to deep left by Thomas. Way back, going, going, and gone. Goodbye. A long home run for Lane Thomas into section 104. And is 0 for 20. You can throw that one in the trash as well. Bang! Zoom goes Thomas with his third home run of the year. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.